Hi, this is Bill Brinkle, host of My Quest for the Best, where we meet business thought and community leaders to discuss issues relevant to entrepreneurial growth. Joining me today is Jay Sullivan. Jay is the managing partner at ExecCom and leads the firm's law firm group. He's an award-winning author and columnist, as well as an adjunct professor at Georgetown Law Center. His book, Simply Said, Communicating Better at Work and Beyond, was released by John Wiley & Sons in 2016. He's a contributing writer for Forbes.com, where he focuses on enhancing one's communication skills for the business community. Jay teaches professionals and executives to focus on the needs of their audiences. He works closely with the learning and development professionals at many global law firms and financial service firms to customize communication skills solutions. Welcome, Jay. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate you having me on the show. Jay, you work as a professional communicator, and you every day you're dealing with people who want to become better at this craft. Who was an early influence in your life that helped inspire you to care about communicating effectively? Maybe a, a good listener, perhaps. Sure. Uh, well, I'm glad you asked it that way because the instinct for most people when I or anybody at my firm tells them that we're communications consultants and, and help people communicate better, people automatically think we're going to teach them how to talk better and share more information. And, in fact, we spend most of our time teaching people how to listen. One of the earlier influences for me would have been in my first job after college, in between college and law school, I spent two years teaching English down in Kingston, Jamaica. And while I was teaching at a, a boys' high school, I also started volunteering at a nearby orphanage and ended up moving into the orphanage, into the convent of the orphanage, and helping three elderly nuns take care of 250 boys. And the, the nun I worked most closely with was Sister Magdalene, this petite nun, actually she was from Malta, and she had been in Jamaica for many years already. And the way she interacted with these boys who were desperate for attention from any kind of adult, the way she interacted with them was just amazing. She used every moment as a teaching moment for them and every moment to really try to get to connect with the child, understand his needs, and address those as effectively as possible. And it was just amazing and inspiring to watch the way she listened carefully, no matter how much chaos was going on around her. And that was one of the earlier influencers for me in terms of teaching me how to listen as a way of connecting with people. It's remarkable when you have people in that life, what a lasting impact and impression that they make, isn't it? It, it absolutely is. As a matter of fact, I, I ended up naming my younger daughter after her. She was such an influence for me. After college, after you went back to law school, what was one of your first jobs that gave you lessons that helped you be successful today? The first job I had out of law school, I, I was in-house counsel for an organization called Covenant House, which is a runaway shelter in New York City that takes care of runaway and homeless teenagers. And my job was to work as the legal representative, not for the agency, but for the, the kids themselves. So immediately I had to, again, listen really carefully to what their concerns were. And these were kids who were absolutely in crisis. They were just coming in off the street, really. And we were trying to get them to resolve their conflicts and get on to the next point in their life. But I had to listen carefully. But also I had to explain things, very, sometimes very complicated legal concepts, in a way where kids who were sometimes from very different backgrounds, meaning not even from the United States, or they were just had a haphazard at best education, and I had to explain concepts to them in a way that they could grasp the idea, the basics of the idea, and understand what to do in terms of next steps, 
and then understand it from the perspective, not just getting the content right, but helping them understand how important it was to address these issues in order for them to move on in their life. Jay, that sounds terrifically challenging. How did you get rapport with people who, I'm imagining, came from a very different background, had a very different view of the world? What were some of the things you learned that allowed you to address people and young people who desperately needed your help, but perhaps had a lot of barriers up to trusting someone to give them information that was important and reliable. What I did in that instance is the same thing that I end up coaching senior executives on now, and that is I didn't make assumptions. Uh, you couldn't. You couldn't assume any background knowledge. You couldn't assume any background uh, problem-solving skills. You couldn't assume anything in terms of the population you were dealing with and the individual you were dealing with. And as a result, you had to set aside assumptions, ask questions, ask deeper questions, not take for granted, not thinking that you got it right, but actually going back and double-checking to make sure you got it right. And then it came down to building enough sense of presence with somebody, just simply being present to them, looking like in the half hour I'm with you, you are the only person on the planet who matters to me right now. Nowadays, people call it executive presence because it's the sense of being in front of a large audience and connecting with people. In the situation I was in, it was more just about actual presence to an individual, letting them know, I have no other agenda than being here for you. Jay, I've never met anyone who could address a large group who also didn't have the skills to do it effectively one-on-one. Does that make sense that that seems to be a precursor that you need to do it in a one-on-one situation, being present, before you could do it with small groups, maybe a team meeting, or a large group, say, addressing hundreds of individuals in a company gathering? Most people will say, I'm very good one-on-one or in a small group, but I get have a large group, I get nervous. I get that. Every once in a while, I will meet somebody who will say, I'm actually really good in these large group settings. I have a tougher time one-on-one. And the, the challenge there tends to be that, or not, if not one-on-one, then in a small group. The challenge there tends to be that if you're in front of a very large group, chances are you're not having a conversation. You can create the illusion of a conversation, but chances are you're just talking at the audience. You're delivering some kind of presentation. So you've made some, you've done some digging beforehand, you've done your investigation, you understand what their needs are, what you're supposed to talk about, you get up and give a talk. But it's, it's really one way. When you're in a small group setting, it's a, it is a dialogue, it is a conversation, and people who are less comfortable asking questions, being open to the fact that whoever they're talking to might change course, might change the agenda, might end up trying to control the conversation, very often those people have a bigger challenge in smaller groups or in one-on-one settings because that is a dialogue. But even when you're speaking to a much larger group, you shouldn't be talking to everybody in the room. You talk to one person at a time, and you give your full thought, your full attention to one person for just a sentence. Then you move to somebody else, and on that next sentence, there's only one person you're looking at. And you end up communicating two things if you do that, spending a full thought with each person. The two things you communicate, first, your substance comes across to that person, really to the whole room because they all hear you. But the second and the more important thing you communicate is that right now, at this moment, nothing is more important to me than that you get this message. You convey your commitment to the audience and being present to them. You can't make a better connection than that. And as you work with different firms and managers at different levels at ExecCom, 
Describe your ideal client. I guess I don't necessarily think of it in terms of an ideal client. I think of it in terms of who can I be helpful to. Uh, because really, when you talk to people, everybody will tell you that they really need to work on their communication. Or they'll say, yes, a lot of people at my firm will need to work on their communication, but they don't mean themselves. But pretty much everybody wants to work on honing their communication skills. Sometimes it's for people who, who really do struggle. They, they don't know how to get a clear message out or, or they're just a nervous wreck getting up in front of a room. And we certainly work with them and, and help them beyond that. Most of the time we're working with people who are actually relatively good at communicating or they would not have made it this far in their careers. But we're working with them to help them get to that next level help them break through whatever challenges they're having. They're already good. Now we want them to be great. What we try to do is help people understand that, that what moves you up and down the scale is never one thing. It's the cumulative effect of lots of different behaviors. So I'll give you a simple example. People who say, who pepper their speech with ums and uhs. Two or three ums in a meeting, who cares? No points taken off. But if it's so voluminous in terms of the number of ums that it becomes a distraction to the audience, it starts dragging you down that scale of effectiveness. But here's an interesting idea. There are probably managers and leaders of businesses who are thinking that their skills are pretty good, and they may know that they have shortcomings, but they're probably not as aware of how their lack of communication skills or where they could improve to become even more effective could take them to new opportunities. How do you help someone who's in a situation like that where they may or may not be aware of it, but clearly if you ask any of their clients or the people who report to them, they would say, you know what, if they improved in these two or three areas, what a difference it would make. How do you help someone like that? When we work with people one-on-one, for instance, we'll have a call from an HR director who'll say, I need you to go work with Jack, Jack's a really great guy. People connect with him. He has these the following issues that he has to work on because he's up for promotion. He's never going to get there if he doesn't accomplish X. We say, great, okay, let's get on the phone and talk to Jack. Rarely do I get an instance where Jack says, yeah, I don't understand why I have to do this. I'm pretty good at all this stuff. Almost always I get Jack saying, you know, I've heard this over the years. I've heard this from different people. I know I need to work on this. And glad to do that, glad to spend some time on it. But it's when you suddenly get in the room with them and you record them and they see how they're coming across or they listen to their messaging or they listen to their tone of voice or they watch on video their facial expression in response to a question that's being asked them, that all of a sudden they can say, oh, my gosh, I really do need to work on this. There really is. uh, I could do that so much better. Or I had no idea that the way I did that came across the way I just saw it on the recording. Once they see themselves, that's when they get a sense uh, that, that awareness happens and they're much more open to addressing the problem. I call that the, the moment when people stop arguing with you because they don't argue with their own data. And if they're able to have a recording and view it and they say, like, like you mentioned, we're not, we're not going to stop until we fix that issue. <laughs> right, they're, exactly. They're committed. They're now committed to the same process, and they're no longer going to be defensive or in denial about it. Exactly. And uh, the, uh, people tend to think that the value of the videotaping is the, uh, the physical, watching the physical stuff. But, in fact, it also gives you an undeniable recording of what was said. And the person gets to hear themselves and say, you know, that is not the message that I w- that, that message sounded so much better in my head 
when it came out of my mouth, that is not the way I, I want to sound or that's not really what I wanted to say to somebody. Being able to help people hone that message becomes important. And the big win for most people on that is making sure that the message is listener-directed. It's about the audience. Can you say more about that and maybe give an example of a contrast, something that's not listener-directed with something that is listener-directed? When you're talking to somebody, you can talk about one of three things. You can talk about yourself, you can talk about your content, or you can talk to the audience about the audience. So think about yourself. Nobody cares about you. If you get up in front of the room to give a presentation, nobody, they're not there for you. You're there for the audience. A lot of people talk about their content. Well, nobody cares about your content either. They care about how your content impacts them, which is different from the content itself. So the goal is always to talk to the audience about the audience. And yet what most people do when they start talking at a meeting, the first thing they will say is, what I want to cover today, what I want to talk about today, what I want to do today. They will start with the words, what I want, as if this discussion, the next few minutes while they're talking about the, the agendas on their topic, it's all about them. And if they simply get away from that language of what I want and instead use language such as what I thought would be helpful to you today. So let's say I'm meeting in front of an audience of uh, partners at law firms and we're there to talk about how they can get more effective feedback to their junior associates. And I start by saying what I want to cover with you is uh, new techniques and plans for giving feedback to associates. I have just made the meeting all about me because this is about what I want to do. If instead I say, you're all here today because you're trying to grow your firm. You're trying to have the best legal work come out of your associates and the best way to develop those associates and to understand how to do that most effectively. How do you give feedback to your associates so that you can be more successful as a firm? What I thought would be helpful to you today is if we cover a few different outlines that will help you present, and, uh, present feedback to your associates more effectively. So by changing the language from what I want to what I thought would be helpful to you, I've automatically forced myself to start thinking, why is this helpful to this audience? And how do I explain this stuff in context of being helpful to the audience? That's right. And when you let that be the driving force behind your organization as well as your presentation, it becomes a much more interesting and relevant presentation than it would be otherwise. So what was it that inspired you to write Simply Said? Was there a particular incident or was it just the cumulative effect of dealing with so many clients who were thinking that this would be a very useful way to be helpful to a larger number of people than you could possibly deal with in your one-on-one -on -one or group? Work. The impetus for the book is we have been in business for 35 years. I've been with ExactCon for, for about 19 now, but the firm's been around for 35 years. And we have this collective wisdom of all these people over the last 35 years in terms of how we have approached clients, how we have helped participants in programs hone their skills. And obviously, each of us takes a slightly different approach, but there's a common theme for everybody who works at ExactCon. There's a common theme to what we say in front of the classroom. And the theme, whether we're teaching writing or negotiating our client development skills, the theme is that you're more effective as a communicator when you're less focused on yourself and more focused on the other person. And it's a very simple idea. And I've seen so many books over the years where people have the 52-point plan of this or the 17 ways of doing that. And I just know that from my own education background and my own experiences in the classroom, that you give people 17 things to do and they're not going to do them. It's too much. So we have one basic idea, that we're going to help you focus less on yourself and more on other people in the way that you communicate. It's one idea. That's it. 
And if you give people just two or three things to do, you make it easy for them, and they do it. But if you give them 17, it's overwhelming, and they don't. And it's easy enough to immediately get the gratification and the change that it makes when you're focused on the others, doesn't it? Absolutely. One of the other things that we're very proud of in our classes is that we don't have any jargon. People don't need to learn our language for talking about something in order to apply the skills. They're busy being busy accountants and scientists and economists and lawyers and consultants. They're busy doing their job and, and knowing their own jargon. We make it easy. When, when we teach people about body language, we call it body language. We talk about eye focus, we call it eye focus. We don't make things complicated. We even give people, because we spend so much time on listening skills, we even give people little laminated cards to put by their phone that just have three questions on them. It says, focus on others, and it says, how can I help? What would be most helpful to you? And would it be helpful to you if I dot, dot, dot? And it's a way of just putting right by the phone the little prompt for people to use to say, oh, here's something easy I can practice. And I very often will teach a class and let's say I'm teaching a class for new associates at a law firm, uh, I'll give them these cards, tell them to practice this, build a good reputation as a listener. When I come back a few years later and do one-on-one coaching with each of them, which some law firms have me do on a regular basis, uh, when I go to hand them another card, they say, nope, I've got it right by the phone. I use it all the time. It's very helpful. Just makes me, it's just building a good habit. And that's the thing you want people to do, just build simple habits that make them more effective communicators. That's terrific. As opposed to handouts that get put on a shelf or not looked at again after the seminar, you know that things like this tool of a laminated card with three simple questions is used over and over again and is reinforced through their application and the great results that they get. Absolutely. I had the dean of a uh, a law school I was working with uh, gave him a card. He was going off to to this meeting, and I said, here's this card, three questions, you'll be able to practice this. A couple, couple of weeks later, he was back in my office for another coaching session. He said, can I get another card? And I said, uh, sure, did you lose it? And he pulled out of his wallet the fragments of what was left of the first one I gave him. He said, no, I pull this out of my wallet every time I go into a meeting because it's such a helpful reminder to not push information but to just ask good questions. And he said, I pull it out all the time, and it's disintegrating, so I need another one. And I thought, this is the dean of a law school. But he, he knows that it's all about making it simple and keeping it simple. So another idea that really struck me in your book is when people look to overcomplicate a presentation. And one of the big myths that people have about presentations is that they need to start with humor. How do you address that when somebody <laughs> yeah. comes in thinking that, I've got to start with a joke. Help me have a joke. Right. Exactly. I, I can't tell a joke to save my life. I, I, you know, two guys walking the bar, I cannot do that. I, I, I blow the punchline every time. The most important thing about communicating effectively is to be true to who you are. You've got to be you. And if you're good at using humor, you'll do it. You'll just do it naturally. You, you probably won't start with a joke. You'll probably reference something that's already happened in the room or leverage something that's in the news or leverage whatever the setting is to say something that, that eases tension and helps people relax a little bit. And if you're good at using humor, you'll do that naturally. But I would ask you to think about humor, using humor in a presentation. It's like the price of diamonds. If you have to ask, you can't afford it. So if you have to think about being funny, you're not funny. And nobody is paying you to get up and be a comedian. They're paying you to deliver a clear, 
coherent, business-related message. And there was nothing wrong with having a very straightforward delivery to yourself. Nothing wrong with it whatsoever. It is what people expect to have happen. The thing about working on your communication skills is you can bring the better version of who you are to the room. And that's really what it's about. And getting people to recognize that there's a good communicator in there somewhere and it shines every once in a while, now let's just make it shine more frequently, it tends to help them realize, yeah, I can do this. And it takes some of the fear away. Jay, in your book, Simply Said, you talk about a technique to respond effectively to emotion. And it's frequently um, understood among managers who have been through communication skills that it's important to use the acronym ART. Um, acknowledge mm-hmm. it, relate to it, transition and answer. Exactly. You mentioned something in the book that's subtle and not often talked about in responding to a particular emotion. When people bring an anger situation to a confrontation or to a presentation, they're, they're asking about something and raising it with anger in their voice. How is that dealt with differently and why? The first part of art, the acknowledge part, when somebody is emotional in a professional setting, you have to acknowledge the emotion that's being expressed. Otherwise, it becomes this undercurrent, and they're really not ready to listen to your well-reasoned, well-articulated response because they're wrapped up in emotion. And emotions feel illegitimate at work. I shouldn't feel that way. This is business. I should be very professional about it. And yet people are emotional all the time at work. It's only human nature. They're upset when things don't go their way. They are uh, happy when they close the deal. So you want to acknowledge that emotion. But if you acknowledge anger, if you say to somebody the very specific words, I know you're angry, what it does is it becomes a, a confrontation in one of two ways, depending on the person you're talking to. If there's a certain personality type and you say, I know you're angry, they're going to say, darn right I'm angry. And they take, and I'm, I'm ticked. And they're going to take it up to the next level and you've now escalated the issue. And now you have a, pro, a bigger problem. Or what they say is, depending on their personality type, they might deny it. They say, I am not angry. I am not angry. And they've done it with a tone of voice that tells you clearly they are very angry, but they don't like it being pointed out that they're angry. And now you can't acknowledge it and take it any further because they're denying even feel that way. So with anger, you simply reframe anger as concern. Concern's a wonderful catch-all, and it feels so much more professional and mature that when somebody who's angry about something and you say, I know you're concerned about this, part of their brain says, yes, that's what I am. I'm concerned about it because it feels more professional to say, I'm concerned about it. And you've now changed the emotion slightly or you've changed the conversation slightly and you've gotten away from something that is likely to escalate the, con- the conflict rather than de-escalate it. Jay, a lot of times with senior managers, like you were describing before, needing to speak to junior partners and help give them feedback, we know that a lot of times people aren't open to that feedback because they may feel defensive, they may feel unrecognized. There are a whole host of reasons why they may not be receptive to it, yet it's critical that they stay within maybe legal or fiduciary responsibilities. There are boundaries that people must operate within. So mm-hmm. how does somebody, based on your experience with senior executive teams and overseeing commonly law firms and special advisory firms, how do people give feedback in a situation where it's not asked for Yet it's important. So it's a responsibility. It's a responsibility of the firm to the junior partner or even to just the advancement of business in general. Giving feedback is one of those uh, touchy situations for a lot of people. 
because in some ways they're not quite sure they're entitled to give the feedback, and particularly for newer partners or newer managers in a situation. And in fact, what's important is for them to understand it's not just your job, it's your responsibility. Your job is to grow the future talent of your organization, and there's no way to do that without giving feedback. And then it comes down to how is it positioned. If you give feedback to somebody right after they've done something that really didn't go over well, and you're frustrated, you just had to spend the weekend working on a project or fixing a problem somebody else made, when you're emotional about it is not the time to give feedback because it will come across, no matter how clear it is, no matter how right it is to give the feedback, it will come across like a scolding or a spanking. It's not going to be delivered well. But if you take the emotion out of it and you sit down with somebody and you start by saying, my job is to help you become a better professional. That's my job. That's what I get evaluated on you becoming better at what you do. So I thought it might be helpful to you if we talked about what happened in the client meeting. There were some, you did a couple things well. There were a couple areas to improve. I thought we should talk about that so that the next time you do this, you keep getting better at it. Because I want to make sure that you're as successful as possible here. And now it's positioned as not, I'm giving you this feedback to scold you or to point out what you did wrong, but let's use this to talk about how you can get better. When feedback is done entirely in the, in, by looking backwards, it's not helpful. It's a combination of looking backward and commenting on past behavior with the very specific goal of being able to look forward to see how this person's going to be able to grow because of the feedback. And that's an important aspect of it. As a matter of fact, we coach all firms when we're talking to different firms about doing a lot of work on giving performance feedback. We encourage them to change the title of the meeting from your performance review, which is all about looking backward, to your performance review and goal-setting meeting so that it's, yes, we're going to look backward, but it's to plan for the future, and it becomes a much more positive exchange. Yeah, you've shared so many great ideas with us today on my quest for the best. You've talked about how starting with awareness makes such a difference because someone needs to own and take responsibility for their communication style and the effect that it has on the people they're looking to persuade or inform. You talked about mm-hmm. how just the simple change of being audience-focused can make all the difference with helping increase the effectiveness of one's communications. And it was great that you talked about questions on the laminated card to get people to see that just having those prompts makes a difference in being able to focus on helping others, asking what would be helpful to them, and then suggesting a course of act. The thoughts that you shared today about helping others become better versions of themselves will really ring true for everyone listening. And I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And, Jay, if people want to find out more about the work that you do or contact you, what would be the best way for them to do that? We've got a lot of information about what we do as group programs, as coaching, as uh, we have a lot of open enrollment programs, all on our website at uh, exec-comm.com. There is a lot of information, obviously, and simply said about what we do and how we can help. There are, I also write a column on a regular basis for Forbes.com. They can check out, just go to Forbes.com, put my name in, and you'll see a lot of ongoing articles on communication skills and leadership. Uh, Glad to provide that. One other thing that uh, might be helpful to your audience, and this is something we encourage everybody to do, is people need to take ownership of their own professional development. And one way to do that, to become more conscious and go back to that idea about uh, ownership and awareness is wherever you are in your career right now, 
or however old you are, think of it that way, however old you are, add five years to that date, that number. I know that's not comfortable for a lot of people, but add five years to however old you are and ask yourself, how do I want to be perceived professionally at that age? So if you're 35 right now, how do you want to be perceived at 40? If you're 40, how do you want to be perceived at 45? And you have to start carrying yourself that way now. So if you see yourself, if you're, if you're uh, 28 and at 33 you want to be a partner at your firm or you want to be a senior manager in your organization, how do you have to carry yourself so people already perceive you that way? Whether it's honing your listening skills, whether it is the way you share information out loud, adding those five years and asking yourself, how do I want to be known then? It's important to start acting that way now. That tends to be a nice perspective for people to have and to think about as they're looking at their own professional development.